0: If Billings or Sauer did know anything of John Ledyard's arrest, would they have told Jean-Baptiste Bartholomew de Lesseps when he arrived and shared a meal with them? Lesseps had left La Perouse, or La Perouse left Lesseps in October of 1787, and it took him until May of 1788 to reach Okutsk, which was Ledyard's final destination in Russia as well as where Billings' two ships were being built for his expedition, which wouldn't set sail until September of 89. He reached Yakutsk and prepared to set sail up the Lena River in July of 1788, six months after Ledyard got on the river and five months from his arrest. Somewhere in this time frame, he met with Billings, though LaSeps wasn't sure of his expedition's complete instructions, guessing that it was, quote, either to go exploring through the Bering Strait or to expand Russian claims down the coast of America. And Billings was likely to not divulge much, as he more than likely saw Lesseps as a rival of some sort. From Akrusk, he traveled by carriage, much like Ledyard, over the Urals and pushed hard through injury to avoid winter, reaching St. Petersburg on September 22, 1788, quote, having traveled 6,000 verst, roughly 3,500 feet for a verst, uh, in 40 days, eight of which were lost in the unavoidable delays. End quote. He delivered the charts, maps, correspondence successfully, but was invited to meet King Louis XVI, arriving in Paris on October 17th. Afterward, he would receive a job with his father in Russia, and his stint in that country would buffer him from the terror, and later, under Napoleon, who could have well been his shipmate on La Perouse's fateful journey, he'd be tasked with rebuilding diplomatic relations before Napoleon would invade Russia in 1812 and ruin them all over again. But throughout the years, from the revolutionary summer and beyond, 40 to be exact, he would wait for news of La Perouse he would write in his published voyages quote, "how cruel for me that after a year of impatient expectation to see the wish for period still more distant not a day has passed since my arrival on which my wishes have not recalled the astrolabe and the boussole" Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark, where we look at the history and historiography of the expedition one day at a time. We are everywhere at Expeditions Pod, social media, Patreon if you want to support the show, as well as our website. You are currently at the end of Mile Marker 2, Episode New Proclamation Lines. In 1828, he would be asked to positively recall fragments, the memorials, as he called them, of the astrolabe, brought back by Peter Dillon of the St. Patrick, and confirmed by Captain Dumont d'Urville of, fittingly, the astrolabe. Both men were not the first to search for La Perouse, though, as everybody's working knowledge of the voyage ended in Australia, the Pacific is quite an ass to explore for the two ships. Three weeks before the Day of Daggers in early February 1791, where nobles attempted to fight the National Guard, perhaps to help the beleaguered king escape Paris, which he would attempt to do and fail that summer, the Constituent Assembly voted on a request from the Society of Natural History to investigate the fate of La Perouse. It would pass, and in time, the ship beleaguered by many issues, political affiliations being only one of them, would be unsuccessful in locating any trace of La Perouse, despite circling the area and sailing by Vanicoro in the Solomon Islands, where Dillon would hear of in 1826 before procuring a boat two years later. However, if there were any survivors, which there probably were, the French tricolor would have been unfamiliar, though I'm not sure they wouldn't have tried out of sheer desperation especially after the HMS Pandora, piloted by notorious asshole Edward Edwards, who, in 1791, while searching for the mutineers of the infamous HMS Bounty, charted Veracaro, and wrote, While cruising sometimes at less than a mile from the reef, we didn't see any houses or inhabitants. Nevertheless, we perceived a very thick smoke, indicating that in fact the island could have been inhabited. Edwards had no interest in this clear distress signal, believing no mutineer would be advertising their position. He sailed on, well, sailed into the Great Barrier Reef, where 35 men of his died, though he did not. It would take 40 years for Australia to become a reliable port, with supplies for government and commercial ships, for accumulated stories of sightings of European swords and teacups and medals to coalesce into one location. vanikoru is an island well, really a series of islands, surrounded by a belt of coral reef, and upon both crews' travails, with the reefs and the currents, Dylan and then d'Urville were able to construct La Perouse's final moments, though there's no real way for us to fully know. It's generally accepted that the Boussole wrecked first, followed by the astrolabe, In the confusion, those first off the Boussoul likely were attacked and killed by the local inhabitants, if not eaten by sharks, as the locals contended. Survivors from the accident spent months building a boat out of the wreckage with the intention of sailing west. The locals saying some did, though two men stayed behind. If that boat ever left the harbor, the French camp was right across from the break in the reef that surely they'd have shot for, as sounding and charting would have been dangerous, and after this disaster and to Bay, their nerves were undoubtedly fried. It appears that they had little contact with the local population after the initial encounter, and if they remained for months, it's a wonder if more people didn't die of malnutrition, if not starvation and disease. Dylan and Durville's crews suffered from illness on the island, and they were only there for a couple of weeks at a time. And while the Boussoul was found in 1964 and confirmed with new technology in 2005, any remnant of the boat that was crafted to free these men, however many there were, from Vanikoro, has never been found. As the men of the La Perouse expedition eked out what was to be the final months of their lives, John Ledyard returned to London in the spring of '88 and was drafted into his next adventure and the next colonial preoccupation of Europe, exploring Africa. The representative for the Association for Promoting the Discovery of the Interior Parts of Africa met Ledyard, recommended by Joseph Banks, and, quote, was struck by the manliness of his person, the breadth of his chest, the openness of his countenance, and the inquietude of his eye. End quote. he met with his Paris friends in July getting a few jabs from Jefferson for joining an English association, but he still provided the same letters of introduction that he had given for Catherine and for whoever needed it in Russia. Despite all of that, it wouldn't be a Ledyard expedition without him lacking the proper paperwork for passage from France to North Africa, and Jefferson apologizing for his being, quote, a different kind of person, end quote. Ledger's optimism and boundless spirit is, as a reader and a traveler, one of the most infectious elements of his prose, one of my favorites, quote, I am determined to sit down, not despondingly, dejectedly, or supinely, what a vile row of adverbs, but contemplatively, cheerily, and industrially. It seems decreed by somewhat that I shall be driven from this world in the most untraversable way, but in whatever clime I may alight, my ardent desire is that the friendship of my friends may greet me well, end quote. But there is something about the final letters of his life that feel homesick. He'd written prior to leaving Egypt, quote, "Do not think because I have seen much of the world and must see more that I have forgotten America. I could as soon forget you, myself, my God." End quote. But as the great Touche amore sing, quote, "It's just I have this problem where I want to be everywhere I'm not." End quote. Thus Alexandria becomes wretched, and Cairo becomes a cesspool. In September, he asked Jefferson if he knew of the Connecticut River, because if you've seen that, then you've seen the Nile. Quote, This is the mighty, the sovereign of rivers, the vast Nile that has been metamorphed into one of the wonders of the world. Let me be careful how I read, and above all, how I read ancient history. End quote. And as for the weather, quote, I think I have felt it hotter at Philadelphia in the same month. End quote. In November, he writes what is believed to be his final letter on Earth. In it, he misses Lafayette, who is busy with the tumult that is about to envelop France. He advises Jefferson to burn his histories, quote, without entering into a discussion, that would be too long for a letter. I cannot tell you why I think most historians have written more to satisfy themselves than to the benefit of others, end quote. He has a final word on the disagreeability of religion, and assures Jefferson, quote, that even your curiosity and love of antiquity Would not detain you in Egypt three months. He closes with one last paean to the twin flames of his adventurous life, lonesomeness and fate. From Cairo, I am to travel southwest about three hundred leagues to a black king. Then my present conductors will leave me to my fate. Beyond, I suppose, I shall go alone. But if Jefferson doesn't hear from him, and it's clear that Ledyard wants to be heard by him. Almost more than anyone save Lafayette. Quote, do not forget me in the interval of time, which may pass during my voyage from thence to Europe, and as likely to France as anywhere. I shall not forget you. Indeed it will be a consolation to think of you in my last moments. Be happy. John Ledyard died somewhere in North Africa. Joseph Banks wrote Tom Paine, of Common Sense fame, but also a member of the Royal Society, quote, We have lost poor Ledyard. He had agreed with certain Moors to conduct him to Sennar. The time for their departure was arrived when he found himself ill and took a large dose of emetic tartar, burst a blood vessel on the operation, which carried him off in three days, end quote. Jefferson couldn't have been shocked, but Ledyard's wish from years ago, I shall never wish to die while you and the Marquis are alive, would, like so much of his life, remain unfulfilled. If he succeeds, and in the course of two or three years should visit our country by this amazing circuit, Colonel William Smith wrote to John Jay on the prospect, slim as it was, that Ledger could cross Siberia and walk across America. Quote, he may bring with him some interesting information. If he fails and is never heard of more, which I think most probable, there is no harm done. He dies in an unknown country, and if he composes himself in his last moments with the reflection that his project was great and the undertaking what few men are capable of, it will to his mind soothe the passage, end quote. Of that, we cannot know. But Sparks relates, quote, the best medical skill in Cairo was called to his aid without effect, and he closed his life of vicissitude and toil at the moment when he imagined his severest cares were over, and the prospects before him were more flattering than they had been at any former period, end quote. What eyes do travelers see with? Are they fools or rogues? John Ledyard asked Thomas Jefferson, who sailed out of France in September of 1789. Prior to leaving, almost anticipatorily, is that even a word? Jefferson wrote about Ledyard to James Madison, not that James Madison, the reverend in Williamsburg. It's as concise as we get from Jefferson, a story that has taken me more than 10 days. Quote, A countryman of ours, a Mr. Ledyard of Connecticut, set out from hence some time ago for St. Petersburg to go thence to Kamchatka, thence to cross over to the western coast of America and penetrate through the continent to our side of it. He had got within a few days' journey to Kamchatka when he was arrested by the Order of the Empress of Russia, sent back and turned adrift in Poland. He went to London, engaged under the auspices of a private society formed there for pushing discoveries into Africa, and passed by this place which he left a few days ago for Marseille, where he will embark for Alexandria and Grand Cairo, Thence, explore the Nile to its source, cross the head of the Niger, and descend that to its mouth. End quote. He ends the paragraph tantalizingly, though, for us. Quote, he promises me, if he escapes through this journey, he will go to Kentucky and endeavor to penetrate westwardly, from thence to the South Sea. End quote. Surely there's no doubt that they discussed this as far back as 1785, Jefferson telling him or Ledyard asking about George Rogers Clark, and perhaps Jefferson raised the prospect of such a journey again. Perhaps that's where the ribbing for joining another English endeavor came from. The major obstacle, which for Jefferson and Ledyard both, was a lack of money and power to truly do it right. Money. It is a vile slave, John Ledyard could write to the African Association despite seeing literal slave markets in Egypt, yet the point stands, meekly. But as Jefferson sailed home, knowing that Ledyard's demise was true, he couldn't have known that the next candidate was already in America, botanizing for France. Roughly three years later, on January 20th, 1793, this man, André Michaud, presented his observations on proposed Western expedition to the American Philosophical Society. As Thomas Jefferson, then Secretary of State, finalized for Michaud his first set of instructions based upon the wealth of geographic knowledge that we've looked at so far, and the APS itself double-checked their subscription list with the names of Washington, Hamilton, Madison, Adams, King, Mifflin, Trumbull, and even Robert Morris, among others, no one could have known that the following day, January 21st, 1793, the King of France, Louis XVI, would be guillotined. That morning, as he awoke to take his confession and his last rites and say goodbye to his family, he asked those who were assigned to him any news of La Perouse.